Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And with two down, here is Ed Hearn, who had his first big league hit in the second inning. He's a youngster who was drafted by Philadelphia. He had an appointment to the West Point Military Academy and decided... To be a baseball player, he would have made an impressive-looking general. He's 6'3", 215. That's it, way back. It is going, going, gone, goodbye. And Ed Hearn with his first baseball. And a high drive to left. Back goes Stubbs, way back. I made it to that the penthouse of all my dreams as a young boy. I mean, I had, I had sacrificed so much to be there, to get to that point. No doubt. I never... I probably never really dreamt that I would play in the big leagues, let alone be in a World Series and be on the winning team. He's struck him out! Struck him out! The Mets have won the World Series! The dream has come true. The Mets have won the World Series, coming from behind to win the seventh ballgame. There's a couple of gifts I want to give to you, and one of them is a little perspective today. Just when I had life in the palm of my hands, I mean I had it right where I wanted it. It was jerked out from underneath me. But this is a man who, first of all, was the short end of the David Cohn trade. The Royals gave away a two-time Cy Young Award winner, and Ed took the heat for it because he got injured right away. On top of that, when his career ended... He had a kidney transplant, a life-threatening blood disorder, and a life-threatening sleeping disorder disease. And when we interviewed him a month before, or two months before, he had had cancer. So I went from the penthouse to the outhouse. What do you do when you're facing adversity, when you're facing change, you think you have no control over it? I was feeling sorry for myself because life had thrown me a curve. This was potentially a strikeout curve. I was having the mother of all pity parties. Life throws you curves, you gotta keep swinging. You gotta keep swinging. Cause you can't hit a home run sitting on the bench. Or worse yet, sitting in stands. I had, I had dreamed of being a big league ball player, that's all I wanted to do and then um, uh, things change. You know, of course, as I travel around the country speaking today, I find that 
we all face changes in, in life. We face challenges, and uh, uh, fortunately, the things that happened in my life, I now am able to go out there and empower other people, share with them a message of, of hope, and, and that we can overcome these challenges. Today, guys, we're talking with, with Ed Hearn. Anybody who knows me knows I'm a, a big Mets fan. Ed was a contributing member of the 1986 World Championships Mets team. He was a catcher. Uh, he was drafted by our Phillies. I live very close to uh, the Phillies AAA team. Uh, he spent four years in the Phillies minor league system playing with the likes of Ryan Sandberg, um, and I'm sure a lot of other great players. He also won a bunch of minor league championships, um, and you've become a sought-after motivational speaker. So welcome. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be with you. I'm, I didn't realize you were quite so close to Philly land there. Oh, absolutely. No, we're, we are so close. We're about uh, 10 minutes from the uh, AAA uh, Phillies team, the Iron Pigs. So we see a lot of the players come and go. It's it's awesome to be so close. Yeah, it was a fabulous organization back uh, in 1978 when I was drafted out of high school, fourth round with them. And, and you mentioned Ryan Sandberg. Uh, a couple of great things about Ryan. Oh, we uh, were roommates on the road, and we uh, were, we shared co-MVPs at the end of that uh, rookie season. Awesome. Ed, what is it like playing in, in the minor? I'm jumping ahead, but what is it like playing in the minor leagues? Is it, is it, is it grueling? Is it a long season with all the travel? Well, I, I was 17, a uh, young high school senior. And, uh, you know, it's certainly different like any, any other 17-year-old going to college or something. But, you know, you mix in the travel. And um, it, it, it's, um, I, you know, truly, I really felt like it was some of the best years of my life. Uh-huh. Uh, and and it, but also on the other side of that, there were some times when, when um, I I wanted to quit. They, so it was grueling. It was uh, it was uh, it was it was both sides of the fence. I experienced tremendous times. That first year at home in Montana was fabulous. We was it was the first time they had a pro a pro team affiliation in Helena, Montana, in God's country with the mountains, and it was beautiful. And the people thought we were gods. And I had a great, uh, you know, three months there. And, of course, MVP with Rhino. And uh, so, you know, he just had some great years. With, and then when I went with the Mets, uh, you know, uh, started in 83 there. In 83, 845, uh, we won. Um, I was on the team that won the single-A championship in Lynchburg, double-A in Reading, triple-A in Tidewater, and the following year in the big leagues in 1986. Uh, so, that, and actually, that run is one that uh, a lot of Sabre people have researched and they don't find anybody else that's happened to do that same thing uh, with one club in four consecutive years at each level of professional baseball. And you were around when the Mets started making that transition from the, from the late seventies for me and early eighties were pretty bad. And then you were in that group from, from 83 on that kind of moved up to the major leagues together. Um, was there anybody who stood out um, other than the, the ones we all know about? <laughs> In which way did that, do you mean stand out? There was a, a uh, white fight with, with the Mets team. Uh, there were standouts in, in a lot of categories. In their <laughs> playing abilities. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, you you had, they had several, many number one picks because they were so lousy prior to that. And you, and they reaped the, the fruits of that with Daryl Strawberry, Doc Gooden, uh, Billy Bean was another tremendously talented guy who really never made it to the big leagues, but obviously he, He's done well as a general manager, and they made the movie Moneyball after him. Uh, so I, I was surrounded by a lot of really good baseball players. And um, as much of the baseball world knows, if they, if they were following baseball in 86, uh, we dominated the game, and we also dominated 
uh, not only on the field, but off the field, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> or in airplanes or motels or bars, you name it. And I'm going to, I have a question coming up about that. But when you were, when you were growing up, did you, did you know that you excelled at baseball and that this is where you were heading? Well, truly, Ryan, I, I wanted to be an NFL quarterback. That was my dream. Uh, but I, um, I grew up on the east coast of Florida, and the high school that I attended uh, was a very strong, uh, you know, football uh, high school. And, but they were not, uh, they didn't run an offense that was one that would uh, help grow a pro-style quarterback. We ran right, ran left, and if it was third down, they'd passed. And, and that was about the extent of the offense that I could run because of uh, the type of team we had. Mm. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I got you. I understand. That's kind of how it is around here. Uh, a lot of running. Um, so you excelled at baseball, obviously, because you were, you were drafted eventually. Um, when did you realize that, hey, I'm good? Oh, I think by the time I was about 10 or 11, I, I mean, I started really, uh, you know, standing out above the crowd of, I think the thing that I've always said, the thing that propelled me in sports the most and helped me to understand the correlation between winning uh, and success and work ethic was a competition called punt, pass, and kick back in the day. And my dad exposed me to that, that competition, I think, when I was seven years old. Because if I remember right, it was eight through 13, and he competed, obviously, in a punt, pass, and a kick total uh, and with accuracy. But he said, hey, what do you think of this? And I, I kind of, I said, yeah, that's pretty cool. You want to do it? Yeah, let's do it. Well, for dad, dad, dad played through high school and probably had the ability to play further, but he didn't have a dad that pushed him. So my dad um, learned to all he could about helping me in whatever I wanted to uh, take on. And so punt, pass, and kick, he learned the basic skills of punting, passing, and kicking and helped me practice. And we did practice year-round. So, uh, and I, and I tell people honestly that I was probably pushed right to the level, to, to that fine line and where we have parents that are gone way overboard today. And then there's parents that are totally opposite. that are not involved in the kid's life at all. And that's another sad, totally sad side, but equally as sad in my opinion. And, uh, but I do remember in baseball, uh, we didn't have a catcher in B little league. I was seven years old and shouldn't have even been playing. Uh, but I, it, my dad brought home a bag, an army bag, green army bag full of this gear. And he dumped it on the living room floor and he said, why don't you try this on? Because Mrs. Barker, my team coach, uh, doesn't have a catcher. And so I strapped it all on and thought, oh, this is pretty cool. And uh, so I caught for that team. And then when I moved into the 8 to 12-year-old, it was all in one group. So you're competing against 12-year-olds. I, I ended up in the outfield and center field where I was told – that uh, my parents got tired of seeing me uh, lay down in the outfield and draw in the sand and things of that nature. And then at nine, I got moved to short. And at 10 years old, I was uh, competitive enough to take over the catching chores. And, and I never looked back. There's just nothing like that position. Awesome. I always wanted to be a catcher, but uh, I mean, it, takes a lot of, it takes a lot of talent and it takes a lot of guts to, uh, to, to stay back there. Yeah, it, but, you know, to me, there is absolutely no position like it. You're the quarterback yeah. on the field. So, you know, if I couldn't be a quarterback in the NFL, uh, I felt maybe subconsciously that was uh, part of the reason I, I took the catching. Uh, I, I just dove into it because maybe it was sort of like being the quarterback. Mm -hmm. 
Awesome. So you you sign with the Phillies. You then you re- you signed with the Mets in the minor leagues, and you spent a, what a total of of eight years in the minor leagues. Yes, approximately, huh? Before that that first day that you you came up with the Mets, you, can you tell everybody about that first day, that first game? Well, I I came up to uh, about five weeks into the season, I believe, in '86, and Barry Lyons was the backup catcher for behind Carter, and we found out later that uh, the staff managing coaching staff and front office had wanted to swap Barry and I back and forth between AAA to get us some at-bats because, you know, we have a Hall of Fame catcher, Gary Carter, and he's going to be playing, you know, six out of seven days. So uh, that was the plan. But I came up in, I think it was early May, and um, uh, ended up staying the whole time. I just was hitting, I was hitting 360 or something most of the year. I ended up at my very lowest point at the end at 260-something. But... Um, just worked out. I ended up staying the whole year. And at first, I, I mean, I didn't play for about eight, a week or eight days. Finally, my first game was in Los Angeles, game of the week. Vince Goldie, Joe Garagiola. Uh, it was special. It was very special. Um, many things happened in that game. Uh, my first two at-bats, I was two for two, uh, leading the league in hitting. <laughs> there, uh, and, uh, you know, the guys are talking. They said some great things about me at one point on my video speaking introduction. I have a clip of Vince Scully and saying, at six foot three, 215 pounds, Ed Hearn had a point with the West Point Military Academy. He would get an impressive looking general. And crack, I'd hit that double left center. It was almost like it was all cut and pasted to make it all go perfect. So it was a great day. And you were able to hit your, your first home run and actually uh, retrieve the ball. Yes, that was uh, on a. On a ensuing uh, homestand against uh, somebody. <laughs> but it was the main thing, that, the, the important factor is that it was uh, Father's Day and my folks had flown up from Florida, were in the stands and um, a couple of neat things about that, you, you mentioned getting the ball back. The the, um, uh, the grounds crew guys there were great at getting, retrieving balls that were special. And they retrieved the ball. Not, I didn't know that till after the game, but um, uh, I rounded home plate. And, and I was I was I was raised to be very humble and all. But I ended up seeing a picture where I'm pointing at my folks in the stands, going into heading toward the dugout. Uh, Ray Knight's in that picture, I think, and uh, George Foster. Uh, and then the next thing that happened following that is I'm in the dugout, and in '86, uh, the fans in New York uh, insisted on these curtain calls, and that was just not in my makeup. And Keith Hernandez and Gary Carter literally pushed me up to four or five steps, and uh, I just kind of I raised my hand. I ended up with one finger up, and that became the, the photo cover of my book, Conquering Life's Curves. Right That's the moment right there. Yep. Um, I just got pushed up the stairs by Gary Carter and Keith Hernandez. That's awesome. And you were able to give the ball to your to your father. I, that was really special, very very special to be able to give that to him. And uh, if we had more time, I'd tell you an even more special story that happened similarly between my son and I when he was about uh, twelve years old in youth ball on a Father's Day. But anyway, we'd better move on. <laughs> so. On that Mets team, you had a lot of strong personalities. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> Gary Carter, Keith Hernandez. You mentioned George Foster, um, Ray Knight. Um, what was it like being around them? Were, were they supportive of you? you? You know, just coming up, you're young, you're a rookie catcher. Um, or was it the other way? 
No, it was not the other way. Um, you know, most of the guys were great. Uh, I think uh, I think my it was yeah it was my first home game after I had had a good start on the road there. You know that that Dodger Town Dodger Stadium thing. Well, my first home game was against San Francisco. I believe Ronnie Darling was pitching. Uh, I made two errors early the first middle part of the game. I was over two when I came to the bat. They announced me to the plate on the third at bat. Uh, probably half the stadium was booing, um, and we lost about seventeen or eighteen to five or something. And I came in the locker room afterward the game, and it was I was my locker was surrounded by the New York media, which caught me off guard. Cause I'm like, well, I mean, I didn't lose the game. Yeah, I didn't have a very good game, but and but that's the way the media was. And um, uh, in regards to how people, uh, you know, how they. Uh, were around me, including the me. This includes the media. Uh, one of the things I remember saying was, uh, you know, hey, yeah, I didn't have a good game. I hope these aren't the last two errors I make in the big leagues. And, um, you know, this this isn't me and things will get better. It's my responsibility. It's my job. And I kind of I just, you know, faced up to it. The media from that day never I, I had great media coverage and they respected me. And, uh, you know, it was shortly thereafter that I hit the home run on Father's Day. Uh, and I kind of became a little bit endeared by the the Mets fans, actually. Absolutely. How how do you how did you deal with um, just the everyday pressures of of playing baseball? I know at that point there wasn't a lot there wasn't social media like there is today with Twitter, <laughs> at, uh, Facebook, and all that other stuff. Um, but people can be rough. How did you deal with that every day? In the in the game of baseball, in the game of life. Um, if you're focused on doing your job, uh, the pettiness of things uh, sh- shouldn't be a factor as much as many people might think of looking from the outside. Um, when when people say, well, you know, did you hear those people booing, say, in Philly or whatever, when you're hitting? No, you don't hear a thing. You don't hear any of that. Cause you're so locked into the job you're doing. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I think you want to talk about my speaking eventually, but, you know, speaking is, is, is another microcosm of life as baseball is. And, you know, a lot of people don't like to speak. And a lot of people might similarly ask the question you asked about, you know, is it nerve wracking on the baseball field? Well, uh, the thing that I believe as a speaker, as an athlete or anybody in life, uh, the key to not getting sucked into that cesspool of pressure is a thing that I call think outside, not a box. That's, I mean, that's tired, old, and a box is nothing. My philosophy is think outside the self. So when you're speaking, if you're up there and, you know, maybe in, in uh, seventh grade speaking class, they told you to pick your audience in your, their underwear. Uh, yeah, well, okay. What, what I say is you think outside yourself and you think about the people that you're delivering that speech to and they want you to succeed. They want to either laugh, they want to learn, they want to be inspired and motivated. Oh, at the ballpark, you think about the team. You think about contributing to the team, being aware of the situations that you're in. And you also, I think a little bit, you think about those fans that are pulling for you. And it's an awesome thing when, when fans are, you know, you have a home team uh, fan base like we had in New York was great, and so you are thinking outside of yourself so much. If you're if you're doing it in the way I believe you have to do it, then I don't think the pressures and the little 
uh, things that, that can bother a lot of people, they don't bother the professional who is thinking about something besides themselves. Hmm. So also during that year, you, you met your wife, hmm. you were right. You were introduced by another player. Um, so you've, you came into the major leagues, you won a world series and you met your wife all in that same year. That that's amazing. It is. And it was, and it still is 30 years later. Um, yeah, God had a plan for my life, I believe, and it included baseball, but as you know, and, and probably many, most of the, a lot of fans and people that might be listening or watching this broadcast, uh, know what happened to me. I mean, I basically, uh, after that year, I was traded to the Royals to be a starting catcher to take over the pitching staff of that young Royals, you know, guys who had won just two years earlier for the Royals. And they wanted me, a younger catcher, to be with those guys for six, seven, eight years. And uh, three weeks in the season, I'm done. I blew up my shoulder. And uh, that was the beginning of the end for baseball. And I kind of went from that 86 great year of a world championship, meeting my wife, by the way, is a nurse, and to, to become later very important. And um, uh, it was a fabulous year, but I, I kind of, laugh about a little bit today and I've kind of coined the phrase I went from the penthouse to the outhouse and now back awesome so it was a great opportunity when you were traded it's not like oh my god I just was traded from the Mets you were no. traded you didn't really probably with Gary Carter in front of you um it was probably tough to get s steady playing time sure so now you're going to the Royals you're going to be the starting catcher um like you just said you were injured unfortunately and you, you tried to to come back after that Oh, yeah. I battled hard. I mean, I, you know, uh, and that's another thing that I believe in, in uh, another teaching moment, I think, is, is um, you know, in, in trying to come back there, you, I, I tell kids, mainly kids, but also adults uh, and, and just people in general, you never want to have to look in a mirror three, four, five, ten years later and say, if only I had done this blank or if only. Because then that's with you the rest of your life. So, you know, that's just, uh, uh, I, I did, I gave it everything I had for two and a half years. Uh, and it wasn't meant to be. As I mentioned earlier, there was a different plan for my life. It included baseball, which is a very important part of that plan. That, that was a part that gave me uh, the ability on the comeback from the penthouse to the outhouse and the back part. Part of the back was my background in baseball. But I had a big valley to go through. And we're going to talk about that now. So after baseball was done, you, you realized that wasn't going to work. You went into the in insurance business. Is that that's that was your next step? Yeah, financial services business, and uh, that really was not. I that was a mistake. I was not cut out for that. Uh, but uh, shortly into that, um, I was diagnosed with three very serious health problems, including uh, end stage renal failure. Uh, hypogammaglobulinemia, which is a, a deficiency of the gamma globulin production of your body, which fight, helps you fight off infection and gives you energy. Uh, I had a rare type of uh, sleep apnea, central nerve apnea, so I had to start sleeping with BiPAP. Uh, uh, the hypogam required a $10,000 IV treatment once a month. And, you know, less than a year and a half after fighting to come back, I was on dialysis and starting, and ultimately there, not too long after that, received my first of three kidney transplants all less than two years after being out of the game. 
So that was a major, that was just huge change. And, and you know, in speaking today, I'm often asked to talk about change because we all face change. We all face proverbial curves in life. And that I did. How, how, how mentally did you, did you grasp all that and handle all that? And did you have support at, at home? Oh, I certainly had a sport at home with my wife, of course, although she loved baseball. So she was disappointed that ended because she was, um, she just loved baseball and she was a Mets fan and she was a, a Rangers fan. Uh, but that, that regard, regardless, that, that's not what you're talking about. But she was very supportive. She was uh, the best thing that could have happened to me there in the end of 86, even better than winning and being a part of that World Series team. Um, I, I also had another a strong part of my life, which was my faith. And that was a foundation that helped me to overcome uh, what uh, what ultimately occurred that was the most challenging part was after my first transplant there, a year and a half, two years after my career ended, uh, the, you, you take, I mean, I take 35 to 40 pills a day, and many of those are to keep the body from rejecting a transplant. And those meds have a lot of side effects and, and different people are affected different ways. Uh, from <laughs> I can grow chest hair six inches long. <laughs> I mean, I was a hairy dude before, but now I grow them all in the wrong place. I mean, that's just one of the side effects of these type of medications. But there's many side effects, and two that I was effect, impacted by greatly was mood swings and depression. And a year and a half after my first transplant there in um, 2002, by the fall of the following year, I found myself in my basement with a loaded 357, uh, and I was considering quitting. Um, and uh, fortunately, uh, I had what you asked the question, what what helps you? What did you have to help get you through these things? Well, when you're, when you're that low in life, uh, you need foundations. And I had a great family upbringing. I had a wonderfully supportive wife that I couldn't do that to, or that was a major, of uh, impact in, in any decision. I don't think there was really a decision. I think I was being a wimp, uh, but I ended up there. The third thing was my faith. Uh, you know, I, I, I just knew, in, you know, in the depths of my despair, uh, chemically induced by the medications, that this isn't what God wanted me to do. It was not my wife, certainly wouldn't. My family would have been devastated. So by the time I put down that gun in the basement, and walked up the 13 steps. I had already made a game plan to be proactive in three areas of my life. I had to get back to the basics of my faith. I realized that I had been just slipping away and that foundation in my life wasn't, wasn't helping me. So, but that was my fault because I wasn't involved in that, being proactive. Secondly was my wife and my family. A great foundation that I couldn't do, I couldn't make a stupid move like that and just eliminate myself from the lives of others that, that loved me. And the third thing was I had been to a professional conference in the financial services business in Denver, Colorado. And I heard from and met and eventually became friends with one of the greatest motivational speakers of all time, Mr. Zig Ziglar. Hmm. And he said, and I remembered this in the basement, and this was the final third thing that was so important in my comeback. He said, you can change where you're at in life by what you put into your mind. And I, you know, in high school, I was a 396 GPA in fourth class of 600 and some, but I hated reading. I never read those big books. Cliff Notes got me through. But I became a reader 
and I became a cassette listen, listener. Everything from the Bible to, to Anthony Robbins to maybe even Buddha or whoever those people are, anything positive I was filling my brain with. Is, you know, like a computer, garbage in, garbage out, or good in, good out. And so with those three things, uh, I began to move forward. And ironically, <laughs> uh, less than a week later, because I know you're going to ask me about the speaking, so I might as well just tell you. <laughs> less than a week later, a uh, former Chiefs player, a friend of mine, called me, and he was in charge of getting speakers for the local Rotary Club. And he said, Ed, man, we had a meeting tomorrow and the guy I had scheduled just called me and bailed. Can you come and just share your story? And he had no idea what was going on in my life, where I had just been. The day before, he called the day after I was in the basement. And I, I was not Superman yet, or never have been Superman, but I hadn't come back yet. But I had the foundation. And I said, Dave, I can't, you know, I'm not feeling good physically. You know, I've just had this transplant, blah, blah, blah. And, and Dave just kept twisting my arm. And I'm like, all right, Dave, I'll be there. So I go to this Rotary Club the next day and just, just, I mean, I used to talk a lot in the minor leagues to, you know, kids groups and stuff. So, I mean, I was a speaker, but I could talk. And um, I went there and talked for 20 minutes, just told my story. And at the end of it, people were, were like, you know, here I am uh, 24 hours from the basement with loaded 37 to people telling me that, wow, that was very touching or I was inspired. And, and, and finally, the last person before Dave and I left, was the president of the club who handed me a business card for cans with me. He said, listen, uh, Ed, that was fabulous. He said, for an old job, uh, you, you tell a great story. And Corporate America pays people like you to go out and share that uh, with corporate settings, associations, you know, all kinds of groups. And he said, if you'd like to, I'd, be, I'd love to sit down and tell me what I do. I book speakers into events. And I said, well, thank you, sir. But... Uh, you know, the timing's not good. And I didn't tell him where I was at 24 hours, but I took his card and um, I did never told Dave Lindstrom, the chief guy who took me there. I just went home, uh, but I started to implement that, those three steps that I had decided on. And six months later, I called that fellow back and we had lunch and um, he said, well, he said, uh, you know, most speakers become speakers kind of like a hooker becomes a hooker. First, you do it for a friend, then a friend of a friend, and then a friend of a friend's friend says, hey, how much will you pay me to do that for me or my people? <laughs> and so literally that's what happened 23 years ago. And, uh, you know, today, uh, 23 years ago, I mean, I've spoken all over the country. Uh, I was doing as many as 80 to 90 engagements a year. Uh, it's been a little slower now. I wrote, wrote my first book and only book in 95. Uh, in part because I was an, at a National Speaker Association conference, and I was sitting at lunch with Zig Ziglar, Earl Nightingale, and uh, Jim Ryan, or Jim, uh, one of the other big superstars. And they, and I hear I am this rookie speaker guy, and they're like, oh, you used to play ball. I think I heard of you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's an interesting story. Huh. So what's the name of your book? You know, that's like the 10-minute conversation. But down, and I was like, book? Me? I mean, I'm just, Ed, I only got two letters of my name. I'm not a big name guy. What am I going to, they go, oh my gosh, that is, I mean, you need to have a book just to, I mean, people, you can't speak to enough people. You can, you can share your life and the lessons you've learned through this book that'll go beyond you. And then I got to thinking, and then I re realized I had a two-year-old son. 
And I may not be here when that kid's a teenager. And that was the main reason that I decided to write the book. It's called Conquering Life's Curves. Yep, uh, baseball right Battles, yeah, Baseball Battles and Beyond. And it's autobiographical in nature with uh, uh, a, a lot of life's lessons learned through my journey from the penthouse to the outhouse and back. And and when I wrote it, I felt like I didn't care about making money through any book or any that. I cared about that my son would have something if I wasn't here. Because that's how sick I was. I was very sick uh, at different parts along the way here. And, um, you know, uh, he had story. He had my, my life. He had my stories. He had all these nuggets. At the end of each chapter, even, I went to the point of making a uh, four, three to four or five page section at the end of each chapter called the inside pitch which really focused down on uh, an attribute a value that that i could draw the book for example i have three years of minor league chapters one of the inside pitches i know is called perseverance it just fits right in so um you know it's been a long journey it's been interesting uh i cannot say it's been easy uh but Life is not easy. As you know, and as your listeners and, and the folks who tune in to you know, because you're sharing good stories and you're sharing stories to help people understand that they're not alone in, in how they feel, the things that they go through. And so uh, you're thinking outside yourself, making a difference. And to me, that's, that's kind of what life is about. And if you want to break it down just to the, the core, fundamental, total foundation, it, it's four letters, Ryan. It's L-O-V-E. Thinking outside the self, that's just an offspring of what we were created to do, was to love one another. It, it's, amaz it's amazing that you say that. I just talked to, I don't know if, you, if you've heard of Walter Bond. He's a, yes. he's a, I talked to him on Saturday. Oh, we and, don't. Uh, he uh his the main thing i took out of the conversation was just to help other people he said he doesn't even like to think about himself he just wants to help other people and that's when um good things happen to 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 you to anybody and uh it's been it's been the recurring theme on people i speak to it's amazing well um maybe there's something to that isn't there mm-hmm Absolutely. I mean, I just, I, I, I just believe that, especially in our generation today, our culture today, Ryan, uh, we've become so I, I, me, me, selfie, selfie, promote, promote thyself. It makes me sick. It, I struggle so bad. And I get depressed about it, actually. Um, you know, my speaking has dwindled in part because it started to dwindle in when the finances crashed here about 2008, 2009 or whatever it was. But I haven't come back to speaking, you know, 80, 90 times a year because I was raised to let my bat do my talking for me. So I'm not a marketer, first of all. I don't like asking people, other people for things. Now, when pe if people, somebody comes to me and says, hey, man, uh, I've seen some good things. Here. I think you'd use a hand in this area, that area. Uh, I don't turn that down. Uh, matter of fact, that's the way I, I like it to go. But as far as making fancy stuff and promoting and look at me and oh my goodness and so you go to the other side of walter bond myself and you and you got these idiots that are you saw at the nfl super bowl this year 
uh, down there of celebrities making more money at these parties and this stuff away from the field, more money than the winners would make in their share. Just being social, promoting by doing stupid things, loud mouth, popping off type of things. But you know what? Unfortunately, that's where we're headed as a society. Mm. In 1999, I started a nonprofit called The Bottom of the Ninth, where character counts. And, you know, you hear different, the media, what can you believe today? But you hear some saying, we're at the cliff, we're right on the edge, we're, we're about to lose it all. I say it's the bottom of the ninth. And it's time for us to step up the plate and make a character comeback. And that's it. And to me, the, the comeback of character starts with four-letter word, love. And love is grounded in, in my world, in my faith, in, in what my creator created me to be here for. Awesome. It's just the truth, Ryan. It's a good one. It's a good and one. I'm, and I'm glad that you're spreading the truth because I can't do it all. You know, um, the folks you have on this show can't do it all. And it takes, we're all, we're all gifted in different ways, Ryan. And maybe I have a story. I don't know you. I don't know. Maybe you got some good stories about painting. Uh, but, you know, maybe they're not as attractive as you being able to share the stories. This may be your gift. And so we're all gifted in these different ways. And that's what makes a team. And that's how we're going to come back. We're not going to come back because of Ed Hearn or Walter Bond. Uh, maybe because of our creator. And if we get back to the basics of that. But otherwise, it's going to take all of us coming together, using our unique gifts mm-hmm. to make that comeback. So keep swinging, man. Thank you. How How is your health now, today? Don't ruin the interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to make sure you're good. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm doing okay. I mean, I, I'm a battler. And, uh, you know, I, I've been through enough stuff now that, that you know, it's not going to be easy. It's, uh, you know, things break down faster. You know, when you get older, I mean, I'm going to be 60 the end of this year. Oh, my goodness. Huh. But I'm an old 60. Just... Uh, when you take 30 to 40 pills a day since 1992, that's, that's almost, is that almost 30 years? Yeah. I mean, that's going to mess your body up some way. So I struggle with stuff, but, um, you know, uh, I wasn't feeling very good today before you called. And quite frankly, I considered asking you to reschedule. But you know what? I don't know that I've said this yet today, but doing things like this, speaking to a group or or hearing, getting a letter back about my book, that's the greatest pill I can take. Well, you really, when, if, when you watch this back, if you watch this back, you can see when you're talking about um, helping other people, uh, you, you, you brighten up. Um, there you go, right there. <laughs> so that's, a, that's an awesome thing. It's a good thing, man. We, I don't know how we can live without it. I think we're in a sad, sad shape, and we're, we're at each other's throats because we're thinking about ourselves too darn much. And I wish I had a bigger platform, but uh, what we we can do, you can do and Walter can do and others like us is use our gifts and make a difference. And then it's up to, it's up to him ultimately. 
Yes. Do you still follow baseball at all? Oh, a little bit. Don't ask me to name the Mets players. Um, uh, I, but, yeah. Well, I, have, I, I have to ask, what, what do you think about the Astros situation? Oh, you're ruining the interview now. <laughs> Look, those guys have been... Yes. Ryan, those guys have been cheating since 1986. Yes. Somewhere in my basement, I swear I have a, a sleeve of Mike Scott scuffed baseballs. I can't find them. When I do, I think I could probably sell them for about a grand a piece. But I was a guy in uh, game three when we came back to New York, and he's pitching. And, of course, I'm on the bench because Carter's catching. And I know that, wait, they're throwing the balls off the home dugout. Well, I went over by the ball boy and started collecting those balls and looking. And about every third to two out of four balls when he was pitching came out with the exact same uh, half dollar size mark above the two seams where the, the president signs and all that stuff, right above that same spot, every ball marked the same way. Uh, and I, I took him to Keith Hernandez on the bench. He took him to Davey. We collected, I don't know, three, four, five dozen. We sent a couple dozen to the to the president's office and much like today's baseball commissioner, not the president, you know, they, I think they've done a pretty good job of sweeping this under the rug. Uh, in my opinion, for the severity of what's happened, um, you know, they've, they've dealt with some guys, a couple guys have taken a hit, but you know, now they're going to protect the Astros from getting hit. Well, if I'm a hitter and I know if I get hit, that guy's going to be on suspension. I mean, you're giving more benefit to the guys who started all this. Not that they're the only group that's doing it. But really, as we said in the beginning or early on, baseball is a microcosm of life. And, you know, you can pick up the paper the front page and see the same junk about people cheating, stealing, you know, doing things they shouldn't be doing. Well, it's no different than baseball. People, people just like to focus on sports because it's, I don't know, guys are making multiple millions of dollars and, so, um, so, the, so the Astros, they've been cheating for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be an interesting season, I'm sure. Yeah. So, Ed, I, I really appreciate it. This was awesome. I mean, for me being a Mets fan, it's awesome just in that. But to, uh, talking to you about everything else has been great. I, yeah. I really appreciate it. Well, I enjoyed it and uh, look forward to, to I will definitely review it. And uh, if I can link it up for you or help you get it out there, you let me know. Awesome. Thank you very much. Well, you keep doing your thing, brother. Keep swinging, man. Thank you, sir. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you're looking for social media content for your contracting business, painting contractors, carpenters, electricians, any type of contractor, please check us out on Instagram at Amato Media or check us out on LinkedIn. We can definitely help you all out. So have a great day.